And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the phone line with us today is Dr. Keith Matheson, Professor of Systematic Theology at Reformation Bible College. Dr. Matheson, it's an honor to have you on with us today. Well, thank you, Dan. I'm happy to be here. You wrote a book a little while ago called From Age to Age, The Unfolding of Biblical Eschatology. It's really a book of hope as you review the scriptures and you very diligently go through the whole Bible. It's about a two-inch thick book, and uh, I'd like to talk about that today a little bit uh, in light of the fact that we're fast approaching Christmas. So um, maybe you could start us off today, Dr. Matheson. Um, In your book, you make the point that eschatology is much more than only last things. So uh, what is biblical eschatology? Well, that's a a great question. Eschatology, the word itself, um, like any word ending with ology has a very technical etymological meaning. It's a, a word or language about the the last things, eschatos, the, the end. So the word is normally associated and correctly associated, if we're being specific, with the very last things, the second coming of Christ and the final judgment and resurrection and the new heavens, new earth, heaven and hell. But if we look, if we step back and look at the scriptures in their entirety, Eschatology can also be understood in a broader sense. It's basically God's goal, God's plan. It's what he is doing to accomplish and work towards those last, last things. So if you look at the Old Testament, it's promising restoration. And so the first advent of Christ is as eschatological as the second advent of Christ. Both are stages in the accomplishment of God's ultimate and final goal that is revealed from Genesis all the way through Revelation. Every promise in the Old Testament, starting with the the first gospel given after the fall, is a forward-looking promise, and so it's looking towards a fulfillment, future-oriented promises that are fulfilled in various stages along the way, and ultimately consummated at the second coming of Christ. So when I work through this book, I'm tracing eschatology in that much broader sense, working from Genesis all the way to Revelation, to see how those promises and themes develop throughout the entire Word of God, but it's all forward-looking towards the final fulfillment. Yeah, that's very helpful. Um, It is Christmas time. People essentially crave, I think, for good news and for hope. How is Christianity unique in this regard as compared to perhaps a sampling of other religions? Christianity is unique in that the Son of God, the Word, was made flesh and dwelt among us. This is not the case with any other world religion. Here, God in the, the second person of the Trinity becomes incarnate in order to accomplish the salvation that he has been promising from the time of the fall forward and that has been planned from all eternity. So we have this hope that is centered in in Christ Jesus, and it all goes back to the incarnation and the birth of Christ that we celebrate at Christmas. So in a very real sense, Christmas is an eschatological event. It's it's the celebration of an eschatological event in the incarnation of Christ, in the fullness of time, 
God sent forth his son. So all of these things give us great hope. We have hope in the fact that he accomplished our salvation on the cross once and for all, and we have hope that he's going to finish that work through our sanctification and ultimately our our resurrection in the future. So Christianity provides us a unique hope in that it offers the one true way of salvation from our sin, of freedom from our slavery, and that final and total redemption that Christ offers. It's a wonderful thing. And in your book, you talk about the eschatological plan of redemption, and you've kind of covered that, but is there anything else you would want to add in in connection with this uh, plan? I would just want to emphasize that this plan is not a plan B. This is something that God has been working towards from all eternity. This was part of the plan. The goal of creation is the same as the goal of redemption, the plan, the goal of salvation, the plan of salvation. Creation's goal culminates in the Sabbath, in the seventh day, with worship of God. Uh, man is in the presence of God in Eden, and the seventh day is the culmination of that seven-day plan. And when man falls and is removed from the presence of God, then redemption, the plan of redemption, is basically working towards getting things back to God's original goal for creation, which is for God to be in man's presence, for man to be in God's presence, worshiping him. And that entire plan of redemption through the Old Testament into the New Testament with the coming of Christ is not a plan B. It's it's the accomplishment of what he originally intended. Yeah. Your book is very thoroughly done. Uh, you cover, there's two parts to it. Um, you cover the Old Testament, Pentateuch, the historical books, the Psalms, the prophets, and during the different centuries, the prophets, the New Testament, you cover, of course, the Gospels, Book of Acts, the Pauline Epistles, Book of Hebrews, General Epistles, Book of Revelation. So I'm thinking if somebody really wants to, um, even if they didn't have a so-called interest in biblical eschatology, although we all should, a general overview of the Bible is all in this book. It's it's quite remarkable. Now, uh, one of the points you make is that the resurrection and ascension are a turning point of redemptive history. Can you comment on that a little bit? Yes. The resurrection of Christ and the ascension of Christ culminate the work of Christ in the Incarnation. We have what has traditionally been called the state of humiliation, the Incarnation, the life of Christ, and uh, the passion and the suffering and death of Christ. And then with the resurrection and ascension, what's been called the, the state of exaltation, where he has defeated death, he has defeated Satan, and he is, as the God-man, truly man, truly God, is ascended to the right hand of the Father in fulfillment of the prophecies of the Old Testament, such as Daniel 7, and receives his kingdom. And the kingdom is inaugurated at that point. And from this point forward, he's putting all enemies beneath his feet. And that process is culminated at the second advent of Christ. So we have a key turning point in the sense that at the fall, when Adam and Eve, when men listens to the serpent rather than to God, there's a real sense in which Satan usurps this role of 
of lordship over the earth, not in an ultimate sense. God remains sovereign. God remains the Lord of all things. But we notice several times in Scripture that Satan is called the ruler of this world or the god of this world. Not that he is a real god, has divine attributes or anything, but he has usurped what rightly belongs to God and that Adam had been placed in a subordinate role under God to have dominion over all things, and Satan, in a sense, takes that over. And so Christ comes and puts things back the way they should be, and as the second Adam, he becomes the one who takes dominion over all things and has made the king. So the cross and resurrection and ascension are getting the kingdom back in order. Mm. In that sense, it's a huge turning point. It's also the defeat of death. It's the defeat of Satan at that point. Now, they still have influence and power throughout this age, but the fatal wound has been has been dealt. So uh, we read about that in Hebrews. Christ came to destroy the devil. And that work is a process, and it continues. But by taking the throne, we have a an enormous change in redemptive history at that point. Yes, very helpful. Sometimes we get discouraged, and particularly if there's a, a war, and it goes on and on, and there's more and more deaths mounting up, and moms get the news that their son has been killed on the battlefield. Or if there's a terror attack, and thousands of people die, or we see ISIS acting up, and chopping people's heads off, and all of that, it's so easy to get discouraged. Uh, What should our basic setting be, quote-unquote? What should our basic setting be as people of God? Uh, Should it be one of um, uh, very negativity, pessimism, uh, or should it be more optimistic? I think it should be optimistic, but it should be an optimism that's informed by Scripture And in that sense, it should be a realistic optimism. It should not be a Pollyanna optimism that ignores the real, the very true and real suffering that goes on in this world and that Christians and unbelievers both experience. We are are still sinners. We still live in an era before the final consummation of the kingdom, before the final conquest of of all things by Christ. And so that warfare metaphor we find throughout Scripture with Christ putting all enemies under his feet, that gives us hope because Christ is the one at the head of this army. He's going to win. That gives us hope and should guard us against despair. Jesus is, he has won the decisive battle on the cross and at the tomb when he walked out. And he's going to put all enemies under his feet, and one way or another, everyone is going to bow the knee to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And in the end, there will be a judgment, and Christ is the judge. So the victory belongs to Christ, and we can have absolute confidence that he wins. But that doesn't mean that between now and then, it's not going to be a bloody battle. Uh, Some scholars have used the D-Day, V-Day analogy from World War II to illustrate that Uh, D-Day was the decisive battle in World War II, and once that battle was won, the victory in Europe was almost inevitable. But between the beaches of Normandy and Berlin, there was a lot of bloody fighting, and there was forward advances, and there were pushes backwards, and 
not all areas of the front advanced at the same rate. So when we look around the world, we look at Western Europe, we look at the United States, and Christians can get discouraged because it seems like secularism is taking over here. And it may be that right now this part of the front line is being pushed a little bit. In other parts of the world, we hear very encouraging reports. Um, I have friends in the Middle East that have told me amazing things about conversions to Christ among Muslims there. We hear stories, things going on in China and Latin America and Africa. So it's it's not a universal, constant upward movement. There's sometimes three steps forward and two steps back, but we can have ultimate confidence and optimism that the victory is assured. Uh, it, it was assured at the cross, it was assured at the resurrection, and now we are called to be faithful and to do what we've been called to do, but we are called to do it with faith and with hope as we march forward and as we deal not only corporately as a church with the sin that's in the world and in our own hearts, but individually in our own progressive sanctification. We're fighting that battle, mortifying the deeds of the flesh and cultivating the fruit of the Spirit on a daily basis. And so that battle and that uh, hopeful optimism needs to inform our personal sanctification as well as the the work of the church in in the world and the way we view the world around us. Psalm 1 is very encouraging to me when I see things happening around the world. It, it does not matter how much the kings of the world and the enemies of Christ mock, he is on the throne. He cannot be voted out of office. He is the king, and he will always remain the king. Yeah, amen. Yes. I like to think, too, that um, as we see our brothers and sisters terribly persecuted for righteousness' sake and sometimes killed, that even that, even that act, somehow is advancing the kingdom of Christ in ways that perhaps I don't appreciate, but it's all within a more optimistic view of the approach of God's kingdom in this world and finally, ultimately, in the eschaton. Maybe go back for just a moment. Um, You uh, mentioned in a note to me when we were setting up this interview um, something about the coming of the Son of Man and how that interestingly connects with Daniel seven thirteen through 14. Can you explain that a little bit in the ascension of Christ? Yes. Um, a little bit of context might be necessary. One of the things I've noticed in looking at various versions of eschatology over the years is some of the problems that have been caused by interpretations of those passages in the Gospels where Jesus speaks of the coming of the Son of Man, because a number of times he will speak of the coming of the Son of Man in connection with temporal markers or time texts that seem to point to this happening in the very near future from the point at which he's speaking. So, for example, this generation will not pass away, or you will not have gone through all the cities of Israel or some of you here will not taste death before the coming of the Son of Man in all of these cases. And and so you have various people looking at those texts, and all of them share this one assumption that the phrase coming of the Son of Man is referring to the future second coming from our point. It's still future to us. And so you will have liberal scholars read that, and they will say, Jesus said the coming of the Son of Man would happen within a few decades of his lifetime. That clearly didn't happen, so Jesus was wrong, and the scriptures were wrong. Then you'll have others, for example, 
dispensational theology, some of those theologians will read this and they say, well, he's speaking of his second coming, and since it clearly did not happen in the first century, we have to reinterpret those contexts. They can't mean within a few decades. It must mean something else. And I, I think sometimes their interpretation of those time texts gets really stretched thin. And then there is also a small little group of people who go by the name full preterists or hyper preterists, consistent preterists. They like to use that term. They say that also that Jesus is talking about the second coming, and Jesus can't be wrong, and the time texts have to mean within the first century. Therefore, Jesus' second coming occurred in the first century. And the thing that I've been wrestling with is all of them are sharing the assumption that coming of the Son of Man means the second coming of Christ. But if you look at the Old Testament, one place that talks about the coming of the Son of Man is in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. If you look at that whole chapter carefully, Daniel sees a vision of the Ancient of Days in heaven, in the throne room in heaven. And he, there's a lot of things going on in that passage, but when he gets to verses 13 and 14, he sees one like a son of man coming to the Ancient of Days. So looking at that, the direction, if we're going to use spatial direction, the direction of the movement of the coming of the Son of Man is upward. He's coming to the Ancient of Days. It's an upward movement. That's different from the New Testament descriptions of the second coming, such as we find in 1 Thessalonians 4, where he will descend from heaven with a shout. And we understand this spatial language is to help us to visualize what's going on, but still there is a distinction between ascent and descent. And so this led me to look again at these New Testament texts where Jesus talks about the coming of the Son of Man, and what I started to wonder is, what if Jesus isn't talking about the second coming there? What if he is using that phrase, coming of the Son of Man, when he's speaking to Jewish believers who know the Old Testament and who would pick up the allusion to Daniel 7, and what he's saying is, this generation will not pass away before Daniel 7 is fulfilled, or some of you will not die before Daniel 7 is fulfilled, in the sense that the the inauguration of the kingdom of God and the implications of it are going to happen very, very soon, uh, within you know within within a very short period of time. That actually did happen in the first century, I believe. Christ did ascend to the right hand of the Father and, and received His kingdom, and the kingdom was inaugurated, and that had impacts on Israel, and it has repercussions down the road for a much broader range of people, but. Given the complexity of eschatological texts, I'm mentioning that as a possibility simply because I think the other three options have just led in some really bad directions. The liberal view is problematic, the hyperpreterist view is equally problematic, and the dispensationalist view is problematic. But what if the common assumption is wrong? So I think it might be worth reconsidering whether Jesus is using a phrase that all Jews who heard it would understand to be an allusion to Daniel 7, which is a picture of an ascension of one like a son of man to heaven rather than a descent from heaven to earth, to make a point about when the kingdom is going to be inaugurated. I think that's very helpful. Uh, thank, thanks for sharing that. We've got just a few minutes left. Um, Christmas is coming. 
people can be hopeful because of uh, the Lord Jesus. What has God told us that he intends to accomplish prior to his second coming? I think there's a couple of things. He's promised the growth of the kingdom. We have the mustard seed parable. We have the leaven parable. We have promises of the growth of the kingdom. We have the promise that he will put all enemies under his feet. This is a more disputed thing, but I also believe Romans 11 points to a turning of the Jewish people to their Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. Um, What I think we need to be careful with, and this we can see illustrated throughout the history of the church, is in thinking about things that must be accomplished before the second coming, there have been many times throughout history where that has led to a lot of speculation and reading newspaper events into the scripture. I would warn against that. I think we need to be careful about that. We had back in 2011 buses and billboards all over the United States saying that um, the the judgment was going to happen on this particular date, and one of the taglines on all of these buses and billboards was, quote, the Bible guarantees it. And that date came and went like hundreds of other dates that people have set. Uh, and when you say the Bible guarantees it and the date comes and goes, a lot of people assume the Bible's wrong. So Scripture very strongly urges us against date setting. So when I, we talk about these things that Scripture urges us to look forward to, they're, they're broader things. They don't allow us to say, this day, this year is definitely the day of the year. We need to be prepared at all times for Christ to come back. Oh, that's excellent. Yeah, I, I agree. And uh, as a broadcast ministry, we, we're very close to that whole scenario that went on with the 2011 uh, nonsense, if I can call it that, and Harold Camping. Um, to wrap it up, uh, we've been talking today uh, with Dr. Keith Matheson. His book is From Age to Age, The Unfolding of Biblical Eschatology. I recommend you get it. Uh, if you're wanting to do a deep study of all of the Bible and try to fit the pieces together, this book may be very helpful to you. And uh, Dr. Matheson, um, just some closing remarks perhaps about the second coming itself and Christmas. Christmas is celebrating the incarnation, the most glorious mystery we can conceive of in the scripture when the when when God becomes man, when the word becomes flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. That goal of the presence of God with man that was disrupted with the fall of man becomes a reality again with Emmanuel, with God with us. And that leads us to look forward to the second coming when we will be face-to-face with the Lord in the new heavens and new earth. Whenever I'm discouraged, I turn to those first four or five verses of Revelation 21 uh, and, and 22 that talk about the what we have to look forward to. This is the inheritance that Christ earned for us. No more death, no more dying, no more ISIS, no more wars. All of our tears will be wiped away, and yet that is not even the best of the best. The best of the best is that we get to be face-to-face with the Lord Jesus Christ. We get to see Him and praise Him and worship Him and thank Him into eternity. 
that's the kind of eschatology that gets me excited. Uh, there's a lot of speculative eschatology going on out there about trying to identify the Antichrist or dating the rapture and so forth, and that's all important and significant. But the thought that Christ has earned for us by his work, by his life and death, an eternal inheritance that involves getting to see him, to be present with him for eternity, that's something we can grab a hold of and look forward to and hope in and praise God for for all eternity. Oh, that's beautiful. Today we've been talking with Dr. Keith Matheson. He's professor of systematic theology at Reformation Bible College. And quickly, Dr. Matheson, if someone wants to look up the Bible College, perhaps they have a son or daughter who would like to attend, um, what's the reference for that? Yes, if people are interested in Reformation Bible College, they can look up ReformationBibleCollege.org. Reformation Bible College is all one word there. Or they can call 888-RBC-1517-1517. So RBC-1517 to get more information. I love that phone number, by the way. (laughs) Yes, it was chosen for a reason. I think so. (laughs) Dr. Keith Madison, thank you so much for joining us today, and very Merry Christmas to you. Thank you. It was a privilege and an honor. Dear listener, please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer. <laughs>